G'day. Welcome to the City Reach Family of Churches YouTube channel. You know, we know that uh, online resources are no substitute for, you know, live preaching in your own local church. But we pray that these messages will really bless you spiritually. If you want to find out more about City Reach and our churches, you can go to cityreach.com.au. Now we hope you enjoy this message. Also, interestingly, is... I set out the plan for preaching uh, months ago, and uh, one of the things we're going to do is preach through the Gospel of John, and it's just fascinating what is the text that we've hit this morning. So please open up your Bibles to John 14, and I think this text is really a text for us this morning, and God has sovereignly engineered this for us this morning. But I want to start out this morning, before we get into John 14, by asking you a question. Here's a question I want you to think in your minds. Ask yourself this question. How does God, so think about this, how does God feel about you? If you were to imagine um, the face of God this morning, and you were to look up at his face, what would be the expression on his face? Now, I know technically God is spirit, so God doesn't have a face. But the psalmist does use language like seeking the face of God or may his face shine upon, upon you. So just go with me for a second with this anthropomorphism. That's the technical language that they use. Just go with me for a second. If you want to think about the expression that's on God's face, what expression does he has, have on his face as he looks down at you? Is it a smile? Is it a frown? Is he scowling at you? Is he going, oh, I can just never get their act together? You see, the way you answer that question, how does God feel about you, is important because it demonstrates how you think about God and how you think about your relationship to God. Sam Storms, in his book, The Singing God, he tells the story of a woman named Susan. He writes, when Susan finally found the courage to get help, she was on the verge of a complete emotional collapse. It wouldn't have been the first time. She'd been hospitalized before and was terrified that if it happened again, her family would desert, desert and disown her. I'm losing control, she said, with an unmistakable quiver of fear, and I don't know what to do. Sam writes, the crazy thing about being a pastor is that people look to you for answers. But as I listened to her story, I began to feel as helpless as she did. You see, Susan's father was a demanding tyrant. His so-called love for his daughter was cruel and he continually dangled in front of her the proverbial carrot on a stick. His promise sounded tantalizing to Susan, but ultimately rung hollow. If you look pretty, I'll love you. If you make good grades, I'll love you. If you're successful and helpful and don't embarrass me in front of others, I'll love you. Sam writes, I've heard similar stories before but that didn't make her words any less difficult to endure. endure. Susan said, I was never quite pretty enough, slim enough, smart enough. She never did get a bite of that carrot. And all she could remember was the bitter aftertaste of her father's disdain and rejection. Sam writes, Susan and I spent considerable time working through the destructive consequences of her lack of experience with a father's love, but we weren't making much headway 
until I asked her the question, what does God feel about you when he looks at you? Pity, she snapped back, never pausing to think about it. Why, I said. She said, because I'm pitiful. I'm pathetic. Maybe that's how you answered the question this morning. How does God feel about you? Maybe you said, well, to be honest, I think you probably would think I'm quite pathetic. The reason I start that way is because as we head into John 14, I want to start a series called Sonship. Now, you'll remember if you're with us earlier in the year that John 14 is part of the upper room discourse of John's gospel. It is Thursday night. On Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified. And from John 13 to John 17, this is the upper room discourse where Jesus is giving his disciples one last lesson on discipleship. And in John 13, Jesus has just said to his disciples, I'm going away, and where I am going, you cannot come. But then in verse 18 of John 14, right in the middle of the chapter, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And I think the reason that he uses that language is because this whole chapter is about sonship. And it is incredible. It is an incredible blessing to be a son of God. Now, even you ladies here today, you might not even realize this, but you are sons of God. That's okay because I get called the bride of Christ, right? You are sons of God. All the blokes are also the bride of Christ. But I'll explain how that is a little bit later on. But, you know, what we're going to do as we look through, as we study through John 14, is we are going to see in verses 1 to 11, which is our passage today, we're going to see the privilege of sonship. Then next week in verses 12 to 14, we're going to see the purpose of our sonship. Then in verses 15 to 26, we will see the power that we have as the sons of God. And finally, in verses 27 to 31, we will see the peace that we have as the sons of God. So this is going to be a great series where we're looking at the privileges, the purpose, the power, the peace that we have as the sons of God and I'm really praying for us as a church family that the penny starts to drop and we really understand, not just mentally, but emotionally, what it means to be the sons of God. Now, what is the privilege of sonship? Well, as I said, this is amazing that this verse falls on this Sunday. So look down your Bibles. John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be what? troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, Jesus here is using the voice of command. Don't allow fear. Don't allow anxiety to invade your heart. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, why do you think that Jesus commanded his disciples this way? Well, it's because as he looked out at his group of disciples, he could see the fear and the anxiety rising in their eyes. I mean, earlier that night, he had told them that one of them was going to betray him. He told them that where he was going, they could not come. 
They'd been with him for three years, the whole time, and now he's saying, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And Jesus had said to Peter, the boldest of all the disciples, Peter, before the morning is out, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. Is it any wonder that the disciples were filled with fear and anxiety and worry? But notice what Jesus says next to comfort his disciples. Notice the security that he gives to his disciples. Look down in verse 2. He says, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So what is the comfort that Jesus gives his disciples? What's the security that Jesus gives his disciples? Well, he tells them the privilege that it is of being a son of God. What is that privilege? What's the privilege of being a son of God? Well, the privilege of being a son of God is that you have a room prepared for you in the Father's house. The privilege of being a son of God is that you have a room prepared for you in the Father's house. Now, obviously, when Jesus says, in my Father's house, are many rooms. The Father's house here is a metaphor for heaven, the place where God dwells. And notice that he says that there are many rooms in the Father's house. You know, you don't have to worry about missing out here this morning. If you turn to Jesus, there can be a room for you in the Father's house. And notice that it's a prepared room. Jesus says that I am going to prepare a room for you. You know, one speaker I once heard, he said, if God made the world in seven days, and this world is pretty awesome, imagine what it's going to be like, the Father's house. Jesus has been preparing it for the last 2,000 years. It's going to be amazing, the Father's house. But also notice the assurance that we have. Jesus says that, We are going to go there because Jesus has promised in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You know, the next event on God's timetable is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is where Jesus will come back again as he's promised, as promised here and in other places in the Bible, he will come back again and he will take believers to be with himself. Paul mentions this in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. Paul says, For the Lord, and he's talking about Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We've had uh, one of the things that I've done over the last 10 years of being pastor here is many funerals, funerals of dearly loved ones who are in our congregation. And you might have dearly loved people who've who've gone to heaven already before you. They will rise first, Paul says. But then it says, and those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, will rise together to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so Jesus here is speaking about how he is going to come back again as he has promised and take us to be with himself and we will always be with him and with the Father. 
And this is why, my friends, disciples of Jesus don't need to be anxious or worried. Because while there might be chaos on earth, we have a room in the Father's house. While there might be uncertainty at what is happening on earth, Jesus is coming back again to take us to be with himself so that we'll go and be in the Father's house. You know, I know the coronavirus is causing a lot of anxiousness and a lot of trouble and a lot of panic, but the privilege that we have as the sons of God is that we have a room in the Father's house. And I've watched as some churches, you know, are either ignoring it, others are saying crazy things like making claims that they shouldn't make, like Jesus is going to prevent us from going through the coronavirus. That's craziness. The true security that you can have, the true security that you can have is that you have a room in the Father's house prepared for you. And therefore, whatever happens on earth, it doesn't matter because you have a room in heaven. And my friends, heaven is our true home. We are just passing through. You know, it's interesting, um, Tegan and I, we went over to the U.S. and we studied over in the U.S. for four years. And we had a great time studying when I was doing my studies to become a pastor. And we had this two-bedroom apartment um, uh, we had this two-bedroom apartment in this apartment block while we were there, and um, it was apartment 911. <laughs> I, uh, this was in 2002, one year after 911 had literally happened. I think the Americans gave us that number because they thought Australians won't care, probably won't even know what happened, you know. Um, but we made that little apartment our home. We dressed it up in certain ways, but we always knew that America was not our true home that one day our time would be up and we would head back to Australia. You know, this world is not our true home. We are just passing through. Our true home is with the Father, is the Father's house. That is our true home. And I think things like the coronavirus, what they do is they burst our little bubbles of comfort and security and help, and help remind us as believers where our true home is, where our true security lies. Our true security doesn't lie in our government's ability to manage the outbreak of the coronavirus. I think they're doing a great job. You know, that's great. Our true security doesn't lie in our ability to wash our hands for 20 seconds while we're singing happy birthday. A true security lies in the fact that we have a room in the Father's house. This is the privilege of the sons of God. But why do we have a prepared room in the Father's house? Why do we have this privilege? Well, the reason that we have a room in the Father's house is because we are adopted members of the Father's family. You know, the reason why Abby, Emma, Ava and Isabella have a room in my house is because they're members of my family and I am their father. You know, Jason here, he's my good friend um, and we are members of God's family together. But sorry, Jason, you don't have a room in my home. 
So when Jason comes over, he's just a guest in my home. It's not like he walks upstairs and he sees a room with a, with, with a, you know, with a plaque on it saying, Jason's room. That doesn't happen, does it, Jason? Because he's not part of my physical family. No, only Ava and Emma and Abby and Hannah. Oh, no, Hannah doesn't anymore because she's David's and part of David's family now. She deserted me. Um, <laughs> she's part of his family. So she has a room with David. But, but they have rooms in my home because... They're part of my family, and I'm their father. And notice in verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And look down in verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way to which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To become part of the Father's family is through the Son of God, Jesus, Jesus provided the way by his death on the cross. Jesus reveals the truth about God to us. Jesus is the life of God. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. So just come with me, all right? Are you all with me? Come with me for a moment. What is God's greatest gift? What is God's greatest gift? If you were to ask, what is the greatest gift that you've been given as a believer, how would you answer? Is it forgiveness of sins? Is it justification, perhaps eternal life? What about the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who believe? Now, I don't like comparing God's gifts, and I certainly don't want to suggest that any of these blessings are anything but precious and perfect. But just think for, with me for a moment about the gift of forgiveness. That's a pretty amazing gift, is it not? We were all once sinners. We, were, we had all sinned against God and we were deserving of judgments. And God, at great cost to himself, sent his son to die for us so that we might be released from the burden of sin and forgiven. This is a pretty amazing blessing, is it not? Someone say amen. This is a pretty amazing blessing, is it not? Amen. But when you think about it, you can be forgiven by a judge and still have no relationship with the judge. The judge can strike down his gavel and say that the punishment has been taken by someone else or paid by someone else and you're free to go and that's a great blessing but still you might have to, you, you, that does not bring you into relationship with the judge. You are just a forgiven sinner. Well, let's think about justification for a second, okay? So we've thought about forgiveness. Let's think about justification for a second. Justification is also a pretty amazing gift. You know, as Christians, we are not just forgiven sinners. We are that. We have had our sins wiped away and forgiven. But God has done something even greater than that. God as judge has also not just wiped the slate clean, but he's also accredited to us the perfect obedience of Jesus. As Paul would say in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we are standing before God in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. This is a pretty amazing gift, is it not? Come on, come on, is this not an amazing gift? Yeah. All right, you don't seem excited about this gift. This is a pretty amazing gift, is it not? Yeah. So we're not just forgiven sinners, we are actually called in the Bible saints, the holy ones of God. When Paul addresses the churches, 
he calls, he says, to the saints who are at Corinth. Has anyone here read the book of 1 Corinthians? There's a lot of mess in that church. And yet Paul says, you are saints. You are holy ones. But I want to put forward to you that even greater than forgiveness and justification is the blessing of adoption. You see, God, our judge, has not only just wiped our slate clean and forgiven us of our sin, and he's not only accredited to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus, but it's like God, the judge, get this, this is beautiful. He's come out from behind the bench, and he says, now that I've forgiven you, now that I've given you the righteousness of my son, I want to adopt you. I want to take you home. I want to make you a member of my family. I delight in you. I love you. You are mine. You know, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he never got over the amazing blessing of adoption. Listen to his words in 1 John 3, 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. John wrote this when he was an old man. When he became an old man, he was still overcome by the blessing of adoption. Sam Storms, in his book, The Singing God, writes, the biblical doctrine of adoption makes sense only when we remember that we are not naturally God's children. It is true that God is the father of all men and women insofar as he is their creator, but many such children of God will spend an eternity in hell. One does not become a spiritual child of God by being born, but by being born again. You know, several years ago, I went with Serge um, up the back to Belarus, and we had this camp for kids who were uh, orphans. It's terrible in the um, communist countries, the Eastern Bloc, uh, because of alcoholism and communism. Uh, many people just leave their kids out on the street. These precious little kids are just put out on the street. And, uh, and it breaks your heart because they have no hope, they have no help, they have no father, they have no future. And do you know what? We were all like that at one time. Because of our sin, we were separated from the father and we had no help and no future. But this is where God steps in. Remember at the beginning of John's gospel, John said in John 1 verses 13, uh, 10 to 13, he said about Jesus, he was in the world. Jesus came into the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know, John is describing here how when you receive Jesus, an amazing transformation occurs. You are not only forgiven, you are not only justified, but you are born again into God's family. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. As a Christian, your Christian life is not supposed to be, it's not supposed to have this dynamic of bondage and fear. Paul says, you didn't receive that type of spirit, that type of attitude, he says, when you came to Christ. But, Paul says, 
you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba was the word used by Jewish children to talk to their dads on the street. It's a, it's a term of intimacy. You see, your relationship with God is not supposed to be one of slavery and bondage and fear, but it's supposed to be one of intimacy and closeness with God. In Galatians 3 verse 26, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, many times translators have, have wanted to change that language in the Bible. For you are all sons of God through faith. And they've tried to change it because they said that's not very... It's too gender specific. Let's change it to you are all sons and daughters of God. But many translators have resisted. And the reason they've resisted is because this verse contains a powerful truth. Notice um, the context. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then he says in verse 27, the next verse, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, when you receive Christ, you then get baptized as a demonstration of your union with Christ, of your inclusion in Christ. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, so that there is neither Jew nor Greek, so that your identity isn't bound up in your ethnicity anymore. There is neither slave nor free. Your, your identity isn't bound up in your socioeconomic status. And he says, and there is neither male nor female. That's not your primary identity anymore, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I remember listening to a sermon by Tim Keller where he was talking about a young Indian girl in his church, and this verse changed her life. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You see, in her family, she had an older brother, and in their culture, the oldest son was always treated with honor and given special privileges. And so her whole life, her older brother was given opportunities that she wasn't given. He was given opportunities to go to certain schools and to go to university that she wasn't given. Her whole life, her older brother was given um, privileges that she wasn't given of food and opportunities to play sport. Her whole life, her older brother could do nothing wrong in the eyes of her parents because he was the son. But then she read this first. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You are God's favored ones. You are the apple of his eye. You are the privileged ones. Remember at the baptism of Jesus, the father spoke from heaven and said to him, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, because you are in Jesus and dressed in his righteousness, it's as if the father would say to you, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, how does that make you feel? I'm not talking about how you think about it. I'm talking about emotionally. How does it make you feel to know that you are God's treasured possession? You are his beloved son. You see, I think that many Christians I've met just see themselves as forgiven sinners. They're complete screw-ups. 
that God just forgave. Others of them, other Christians see themselves as, they've, they've gone a little bit further, they see themselves as saints, the holy ones of God. But I found that many Christians don't understand that they are sons. That they are sons. This is not just a truth that we believe with our minds. It's a truth that we're supposed to grapple with in our emotions, in our hearts. And I know the reason why that is. Some of you don't understand why that is. And that's because you've had great fathers. You've had great earthly fathers who believed in you, who have spoken words of life into your heart, and you've had the, a great privilege of growing up in a great family. But there are other people among, this, among us here this morning, and you've had terrible dads, earthly dads. And so you can, get that, you can get that truth with your mind that you are a son of God, but you don't really feel it with your heart that God loves you. Do you know, I've sat with people I've sat with people in their 50s, get this, in their 50s and 60s. And they've wept with me as they've told me about, about memories that they still have in their, in, their, in, their, in their experience, in their memory from how their fathers treated them when they were like 11 years old. And it's still as real to them today as when it happened way back then. And there might be some people here today, and that's you. As you can get the idea that Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But the idea that God really loves you, really loves you. He doesn't just love you because he had to, because he sort of like had to, because now you've trusted in him, and so he sort of has to love you. Do you know what it says in Ephesians 1? It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption through his son. In love, he determined that he was going to adopt you and include you in Christ. So how do you, how do you, how do you overcome this? How do you overcome this father wound that we can have? Well, I think Jesus says some helpful things in verse 7. Look in verse 7 in your Bibles. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. To which Philip then says, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. To which Jesus says, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me, Philip? I've been with you for three years, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, Jesus is saying, Philip, you want to see the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard my words, you've heard the words of the Father. If you've seen my works, you've seen the work of the Father. How can you know that the Father really loves you? Look at what Jesus did for you. At the cross, we see the Father's love. The Father's love demonstrated for us. And I know it'll take some time for that 
to catch up in your heart emotionally, if you've been wounded by your earthly father. But what you need to pray for, and this, is, this, this, happens, this, is, this happens through prayer, people. And it happens through a work of the Spirit. As, as Paul would say in Romans 8, it's that his Spirit witnesses with our Spirit that we are the children of God. It takes an operation of the Holy Spirit to actually bring that truth home and make that truth so real to you. That you are a son of God. You're a child of God. I've sat with people who I've been counseling. And when they get this, I mean, they don't just get the truth intellectually, but it, it comes on them emotionally. That they are loved by the Father. It releases them. And why does it release them? Because what's the privilege of being a son of God? The privilege of being a son of God is that you have a room in the Father's house because you are a member of the Father's family. And some of our problems with anxiety and worry is because we're not really sure whether we really do have that room in the Father's house. We're not really that confident and assured that he really does love us. And we need to look to the cross and rest in what God has done for us through Jesus. And we need to ask the Spirit to actually bring that home in our hearts. You know, I started this morning's message by asking you the question, how does God feel about you? And then I told you the story of Susan, who when asked by her pastor, Sam, what does God feel about you? She snapped back and she said, pity. And when he asked why, she answered, because I'm pitiful, I'm pathetic. Well, Sam says that for the next hour or so, he explained to Susan how much God loves her. He labored at finding just the right words to convince her it was true, but it was tough going. He says, I explained the depth of his love as expressed in the cross of Christ. I used images, vivid metaphors, and countless word pictures. They all failed. The idea of a loving father who enjoyed her was incomprehensible to Susan. Nothing seemed to make sense. Then Sam says that I read to her Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how God feels about you, Susan. He looks at you and he thinks of you and he sings for joy. And she was stunned. God sings, God sings over me. After a few moments of shocked silence, tears began to well up in her eyes and eventually they streamed down her cheeks. Sham, Sam, are you sure? But I'm so pathetic, she protested. I really am. I'm 30 pounds overweight and I'd die if anyone saw the inside of my house right now. It's almost as messy as I am. My husband is furious at me again. I can't do anything right. And you say that God rejoices over me with singing? I doubt it. He's more likely screaming in disgust as my dad used to do. Well, again, Sam says, I asked her to read the passage. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet over you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And the tears returned. And she said, if only I could believe it were true. 
I think I could face almost anything if only it were true. It is true. It is true. You can face almost anything if you know the privilege of being a son of God, which is you have a room in the Father's house because you're an adopted member of the Father's family through Jesus. Through Jesus. You know, what is needed by God's church at this moment is we need to be a non-anxious presence in the world. And we can be that because this world is not our home. This coronavirus has burst our little bubble of comfort and security. But our comfort and our security was never in this world. It was also always supposed to be in Jesus. So do you need to turn back to God this morning and say, God, I want to put my security, my comfort in the fact that I have a room in the Father's house. I was preparing this message yesterday in my room and I was just thinking, I was just thinking about everything that's going on and I was thinking, now I'm no prophet or anything like that, I don't want to make predictions or anything like that. But I was just thinking, this is unique what's happening in our world at the moment and it might either lead to the biggest revival that we've ever seen in the world where people turn back to God like never before or it might lead to the end game of an antichrist rising up and Jesus coming back either way praise God <laughs> this earth is not my home I'm, I'm living for the father's house that's that's I'm a room in the father's house And I, we shouldn't put our security here, church. We put our security in him. So let's pray, hey? Let's pray together. Let's stand together. Let's pray.